Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And today's conversation is going to blow your socks off. First of all, it is super fun and I love this guest so much. For those of you who have been listening for a while, you will know who Colleen Cullinan is. She is a PhD psychologist and did a couple of really great episodes, one on anxiety and one on depression. So look for those. They're awesome. So Colleen is a pediatric psychologist at Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children in in Wilmington, Delaware. She specializes in integrated primary care within the Division of Behavioral Health. She completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo in 2015. Dr. Cullinan supervises psychology externs and interns, and she directs medical education efforts for Nemours residency training programs. Her presentation and publication records center around integrated care, family-based interventions, and experiential cultural humility training. She is amazing, and this conversation was just so rich, and we could have gone on for another hour, so stay tuned. There will be part two. Hey, Colleen, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am so excited to have you back again. You are one of the most popular guests I have, so I'm delighted and I'm hoping that we can continue to do this regularly because it's way fun for me. Today, you've done some excellent podcasts and I would recommend that listeners go back and take a listen to the anxiety, the three B's, which was really great. And then depression, naming the monster. But today we're going to dive into talking a little bit about ADHD management and what to do besides medication. So let's just start in because, you know, I think everybody has an idea of what ADHD is, but let's just talk about some of the deficits that we see in executive functioning and what ADHD you know, patients with ADHD, what they might experience. Yeah, I think when I talk to families about ADHD, I start out by doing some definitional things and then I do tie it to executive functioning because I think executive, talking about executive functioning really gets at the things that I think families care about. So I do have a conversation because the internet's out there. I do think there's a lot of like misinformation on the internet and also, you know, Families are trying to keep up with a very rapidly changing science and field. So when I talk to families about ADHD, I do have a conversation about the diagnosis itself. I do have a conversation about, you know, 20 years ago, we made a lot of distinctions between ADHD, ADD, that kind of stuff. And now I do have a conversation with families about the types of ADHD, because oftentimes, and especially now that families are getting more of their medical information like immediately from the medical record, I do have a conversation about, okay, nowadays, 
everybody who has an attentional disorder is diagnosed with ADHD. And there are these three types. There's ADHD inattentive type, where you have six or more of these inattention symptoms where you're daydreaming or you're forgetting stuff, or it's hard to sustain concentration. It's hard to stick to one thing or stick to a couple different things. And those are kids who are going to have ADHD inattentive type. There's another subset of kids. They're going to have ADHD hyperactive impulsive type. They have six or more of these impulsive hyperactive symptoms where they're blurting out or they're having a hard time waiting in line or they're moving their bodies. And I give some examples like that. And then I say, those kids are going to fall into the hyperactive impulsive type. And then the third type is the kids who've hit the jackpot, which is most kids. And they have both. They have a little bit of both of these things. That's ADHD combined type. I do go through that because I think a lot of parents were raised in a time of ADHD, ADD, and they get really confused or upset when they get the printout that says ADHD inattentive type. And it's like, oh, my kid doesn't have ADHD. So I do some of that because I think it is important for families and providers to be speaking the same language about some of this stuff. So before I even get into executive functioning, I do a little conversation about the terminology and the labels. And that's what I call it. And that's how I get into a conversation about what is executive functioning. Because I very quickly run through that and then abandon it because ADHD really is a label. It's a name of a category of behaviors that we want to look at and potentially see how can we change the environment to make a kid the most successful as possible. And so the label matters a little bit less, but it is something that's out there. And so I talk about that, but then I very quickly jump into this idea of executive functioning, which to me is the stuff that families really do care about the most when it comes to how their kids are doing at school or with their friends or in their activities or at home or with their siblings. Like executive functioning, to me, much better captures what's going on for kids than this label of ADHD, ADD, inattentive type, combined type, or hyperactive type. I think it's important to go over that stuff, but once I get into executive functioning, that's when I think I'm really connecting with families. So I talk about executive functioning, I have a spiel or a conversation that goes something like this. Executive functions are sort of like the air traffic control system of the brain. If you think about air traffic controllers in like a very busy airport, they have an incredibly important and difficult job. And that job is to do so many things to maintain safety and efficiency in the air. There are planes that have to come in. There are planes that have to go out. You have to sort of manage the airspace. You have to be able to shift and adjust if there's a change in the weather or someone calls out sick or something weird. There's a medical event on the plane. You have to be able to prioritize. You have to be able to do multiple things and look at multiple things. You have to be able to look at the big picture and also zoom in on specific details. It's an incredibly difficult job, but that's sort of what executive functioning is. That's what it is for kids in the brain. It's this sort of set of skills or abilities that's really about prioritizing, setting goals, like inhibiting your initial response so you can look at the bigger picture, hitting that brake system so you can see everything that's happening. It is this kind of complex cognitive set of skills. And this is how I talk about it with families. I think this is when it clicks in. So you can go through the Vanderbilt and you can say stuff like, look, here are the criteria. But I think what families actually connect to is this conversation about these higher order executive functions. There's a ton of metaphors you can use to talk about this. I like the air traffic control one personally, because I think it really sets up the stage. But you could talk about 
the executive functioning system being like the coach and there's, you know, players on the team and, and the role of the coaches to see how all the players work together and call the plays and make a shift if something happened. Like you can do that. You could say it's a conductor. That's um, the one. Or- that's my favorite. Yeah. Like, okay, the flutes need to be up and the drums down and, you know, and what happens? What's it sound like when the conductor's not there and they're all tuning up? It's like a huge mess. And then it's magic. That's exactly right. And I think that um, that is the stuff much more so than going through a checklist of symptoms and signs and like going through what the teacher is saying. Like, and that stuff's important. I think you can connect that when you're making some of these comparisons. But I think once you start getting into that, that's when families are like, yes, now you're talking about my kid. You know what I mean? Now you're talking about these deficits. And the rule of thumb that I use when I talk about executive functioning is no kids are good at this. (laughs) Okay. Like adults are decent at it. It's hard for everybody. Adults are okay at it. Kids, all kids, are bad at it. Kids aren't really starting to get good at executive functioning until they're in their early to mid-20s. And then from then on, it's like a slow decline for the rest of your life. Like, nobody is grieving. We peak at 30. We're like, I got it all together. So what's that say when you hit your 60s? Like, I'm I'm clinging. I'm clinging. Yeah, it's kind of a great picture. But yeah, yeah. that's why I have color-coded to-do lists. (laughs) Well, exactly. Yeah. And I think just like painting that picture of like, look, executive functioning is hard. It's hard for everybody. It's hard for kids in particular. And kids who you suspect might have an attentional disorder might be on this ADHD continuum. They're going to be about two or three years delayed in these skills compared to their same age peers. So I try to put that in perspective for families. If you have a seven-year-old Not when it comes to intelligence, not when it comes to creativity, not when it comes to other kinds of like motor skills, but when it comes to executive functioning, kids are more like two to three years. So if you have a seven-year-old, they might be operating in these skills more like a five-year-old or a four-year-old. You might have a kid who's in second grade, but when it comes to organization and prioritization and inhibiting responses and reactivity, we might be talking about someone what's more like their kindergarten. And I think Setting families' expectations is a critical part of ADHD management. Like helping families to understand like, hey, there might be some changes that you guys have to make in the way you do certain things or the way you talk about certain things or the way you give certain instructions or the way you set things up in your household or your family, same way in the classroom. And that's not to say anything about your child's like brilliance or their ability to connect socially or their ability to do other stuff. But when it comes to these very specific skills, there, there is a measurable delay in these skills. And I think when you say that there is sort of a light bulb that goes off in parents' heads, like, oh, okay. Like, okay. Like this might not be a non-compliance thing. This might be a delay or a deficit or an issue in these very particular skills. And so I think like helping families to have developmentally appropriate expectations is huge when it comes to thinking about starting medication or when it comes to thinking about how are we going to do behavior therapy or when it comes to thinking about how are we going to structure a 504 plan or a set of school interventions. Setting the expectations for what we're talking about is really almost essential, I think, to the journey of starting to manage this chronic neurobiological condition. I love that framework. It makes me think of Ross Green, who did the book about the explosive child, and he says, Mm -hmm. children do what they can, 
you know, they're not intentionally getting up in the morning and going, gosh, I hope that I can get in trouble at school and, you know, have my parents screaming at me. They're doing what they are able to do. So I, I think about the, you know, the scenario, I think this one will be pretty resonant with pediatric clinicians and, you know, the parent comes in, it's a well visit and it's, you know, an eight or nine year old and, they say, you know, when you're doing your screen, maybe you're doing the pediatric symptom checklist, which I would recommend you do at all your well visits for those um, school-age kids. And they say, oh, they're having trouble at school. Well, that could be a lot of things, right? But I think the first go-to often, because it's so much kind of in the mainstream, is I think my kid might have ADD. Or the teacher said, you should talk to your doctor about that. And, and huge. I mean, it could be learning disabilities. It could be anxiety. It could be that the family's homeless and, you know, you're not paying attention because you didn't know where you were going to sleep tonight. But we often start with, you know, okay, well, let's just do easy go-to for me too, to say, okay, I'm going to just, oh, it's ADD. Let me get out the, the Vanderbilt. But is there a broader way that we should be approaching it? Honestly, if I had a you in my office, I would just say, you know what, I have an expert that can do that. But for pediatricians, I think we have typically thought, okay, let's just do the Vanderbilt and that will get me the information I need, but it might miss a lot of this other stuff. Any advice about sort of that kind of global response so we can narrow down the, the kind of rule out some, some dikes? Yeah, I think you bring up an excellent point, which is as pediatric providers, as people who arguably, hopefully, to some degree for most of your patients have known them since they were babies, you have such an advantage of having the full developmental picture. You have such an advantage of knowing this kid and their family, their context, their situation, their birth history, which is a huge risk factor for a lot of psychiatric conditions. Like you just have such potentially, I know that sometimes it doesn't always work out this way perfectly. But potentially, you have such a wealth of information about the broader context, which is so important to diagnostics. The history is all always going to be the thing that dictates what's happening. I do think that the Vanderbilt is actually a really well-designed tool. It misses a lot of stuff about the why, of course. It misses a lot of stuff about, like, why are we having symptoms of inattention? Why are we having symptoms of hyperactivity? Why are we having disruptive behavior stuff? Why, why that? It doesn't put it into a context of, trauma or poverty or history of like a historical complexity, it doesn't put it in that context. You have to do that. Like, you know what I mean? That's like, your you're not going to make that easy for us. No, I'm not <laughs> sorry. I'm not. But I do think that that's what's, Vanderbilt is really designed with the top comorbidities in mind. So I, I also have this conversation with families. When I go through the Vanderbilt with them, I talk about, talk about inattention. Inattention can be a ton of different stuff. And the way our diagnostic system is set up, there are other diagnoses where inattention is a primary symptom. If you think about anxiety, like a generalized anxiety disorder, inattention is a criterion. If you think about depression, difficulty concentrating is a part of the criteria. And so there is a lot of work to be done diagnostically, but the Vanderbilt, it's not a perfect tool by any means, but it is a great starting point because it does cover those symptoms of inattention. It does cover the symptoms of hyperactivity. It does cover the next most popular comorbidity with ADHD, which is like OVD disruptive behavior stuff. Over half of kids have both of those at play, like attentional concerns and conduct E issues. And then it covers some 
combination of anxiety and root stuff. And then the impairment piece, which is the learning disability piece. The most common comorbidities with ADHD are those disruptive behavior disorders, those sort of oppositional disorders, noncompliance stuff. And then second place is going to be learning disabilities. Learning disabilities really is where even I am often challenged. So I also would really recommend if you're in practice, like knowing the schools, knowing the schools in your area, really knowing them. Because I didn't practice in the same area for years, which is to my benefit, but I do do research on all of the schools in my area. I'm lucky in the state of Delaware, they publish like a report card for all of the schools. I think a lot of states do this actually, like publish data about what is the pass rate for math, for English, what is the attendance rate of the average students, what is like the, the expulsion rate at the school, those kinds of things, or the suspension rate at schools, those kinds of things matter quite a bit. And so I've had, I can't tell you how many kids have come to see me. I'm working in a, like a very low income area of Delaware and an area that has a lot of poverty, violence and issues with the opioid crisis. And so I, I work like that serves those schools and those populations. And I think knowing a little bit about the schools is really important. When I get a kid who's sent to me and the question is about ADHD, if I'm not careful and I don't do a little bit of learning screening, I've had kids who come to me where the parents are like, I think he has ADHD. Kids can't read or they can't write or they truly, like, truly, there's like a cognitive disability or an intellectual disability at play. And that, so I do think rooting out the Vanderbilt will not do that very well. That's something that I think is really important to sort of know about like, okay, what's the community I'm serving? What are the schools that I'm serving? Are these schools that are going to be good about doing psychoeducational testing proactively? Or are these schools that sometimes just send to the pediatrician first, and then you need to do some coaching about school advocacy? So I think like knowing your community, knowing your schools, knowing your families, that's what helps put the Vanderbilt into context. And then the Vanderbilt, I actually think is a decent tool. Again, cast about the philosophy of diagnostics. <laughs> um, it, 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 none of these diagnoses are perfect. There is no, and I say this to families, I'm sure you do too, there is no blood test for any of this. There is no x-ray. Gosh, I wish. <laughs> that would be easy. Right. There is no confirmatory testing for any of this. We're all just doing our best with the information that we have. And there is no getting it right because there is no right to get. We're just trying to find the best labels for the clusters of signs and symptoms that we have. My sincere belief, and I think that the science is moving in this direction, my sincere belief is that the science is going to move away from we have ADHD and then we have treatments for ADHD because ADHD isn't a thing. Depression isn't a thing. Like these are the labels that we've given yeah. for constellations. I hope someday that there is the development of treatments for executive functioning. You know what I mean? Yes, or impulsivity. Yes. You know what I mean? That's not where the science is at right now. It's just not. And the best thing we have is to try to find things that match up with the labels because we've done this thing where we develop medications for labels, which is problematic. And I know the heart of a lot of frustration when it comes to doing this for myself included, but that's the system we're working in right now. And so given that, you know, using the Vanderbilt as thoughtfully as you can, I do think the Vanderbilt actually is a really nice place to start as long as you are considering some of these more contextual factors, you know the place you're working in, you know the family you're working with, you know your own like sort of biases and blind spots around some of this. I think that's the way to think about using the Vanderbilt. 
we'd all be doing like ACEs screening. We'd all be doing that at those really early child visits with parents. I think that if you're talking about a broad screener that captures risk and captures the risk of any psychiatric condition, regardless of what we're talking about, or even chronic health condition, ACEs screening is where really where it's happened. I know that's a heavy lift and I know that that's a lot of manpower to do that. But if we're talking about what's a screener that would capture really good risk really early, that would be the one I would pick. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can certainly out, you know, social determinants of health, you know, is this, you know, only with food insecurity, that's a whole nut, you know, if I'm not eating, it's going to be hard for me to pay attention with the, the learning disability parents is, Imagine that you're in a classroom and everybody's speaking Japanese and you don't speak Japanese. You're going to have a really hard time paying attention because it's not you understand what they're saying. And that may be what's going on if your child's having problems with reading or math. It's like it's which. So that sometimes has been sort of my psychoed approach to those diagnoses or those. But I love your framing of treating labels as opposed to trying to mitigate symptoms and dysfunction. Because really, like, for example, the diagnosis of ODD, I hate so much. It says nothing other than this kid is causing problems. It doesn't tell you anything about, so what do you do with that? Like, it's not like there's a pill for ODD. People try that a lot and throw things at it, but I think it's really sorting through and, and, talking a lot about comorbidities and, and that that's, you could, you know, if you thought it was anxiety, you could do a scared or a GAD7 that might help you. And with major, I think you have to think about substance use, you know, so you have to think about, you know, what's your, have like a test that you are screens, really not tests, but, you know, I think have the, having those in your arsenal as you're trying to tease this down. I think the other thing for me is for yourself if you have a child that comes in with this stuff at a well visit is that you don't have to do it all in that well visit. You can touch on it. You can say, we need to gather some more information. This understand your child better and let's schedule another appointment where you can dive into this because otherwise it will totally derail your day and then you're freaked out and then, and then it, there is a mess. So for all your own self-preservation, no, I, you know, the thing is, this isn't like an emergency this stuff has been going on. Now, sometimes it is for parents because their kids getting thrown out of school or daycare or whatever. But I think you can buy some time and, and, and there is, you need the time to do a good job to gather information. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. The other thing I was just thinking as you were speaking, which I, I neglected to say, but I always, always ask about sleep. Sleep is the other one when I'm doing an ADHD screening or evaluation or that's part of my kind of differential making sure I'm asking some good questions about sleep is super important because that impacts mood. I mean, it impacts everything. It's at the core of everything. And a lot of kids who have ADHD-like symptoms do have really dysregulated sleep. That can be really helpful in figuring things out. Sometimes it's about helping families to set a better sleep schedule or to do behavioral sleep interventions. But sometimes for me also, when I hear about a kid who's like having a hard time falling asleep, but is wide awake and ready to go at like 5 a.m., that's part of my picture too. Yeah. And for listeners, he did two podcasts with me on sleep that are exceptionally good. And plus he's really, really fun to listen to. So that's just a, you know, another 
you know, go scroll through the list of podcasts because there may be a topic, substance use, for example, I think, you know, again, in teenagers. And, and then that opens up the whole, you know, is that anxiety and self-medication? So there it goes. And I do think maybe in teenagers, there can be a component of depressive symptoms because I'm doing so badly. I'm trying so hard. I can't meet the expectations. And it may not be a primary diagnosis of depression, but it follows. And those kids, man, treating them, if you can find the medication that can treat the inattention, which you may see more as a teenager, you may see, I don't see the hyperactivity so much in teenagers, although some of that impulsivity, but man, if you can, can mitigate those symptoms, it's like a light switch went on and it's such a relief. Well, you know, ADHD medication, stimulants and methylfate's been around for decades and I think has a lot of safety. And we're really not going to talk about medications today, but just to say that we have a pretty good arsenal of medication therapies, but when it's not working well, it's either dose adjustment or think of all these other comorbidities and, and you might need to circle back. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that I'm not a medical physician. I'm not, I don't, I don't prescribe medicine. I work with prescribers very, very often, but I don't prescribe myself. But what I talk about, I try to, again, a lot of the work is expectation setting. So I'm very clear, like stimulant medications have been around for a long time. They actually are pretty effective, but really only with the kind of core symptoms of ADHD. So medications are pretty good at enhancing focus or enhancing sort of the ability to sustain attention for longer. They're pretty good at helping kids press pause and make different decisions or be able to regulate their bodies a little bit better in the classroom. I have that conversation. And then I have another conversation that's like, those medicines aren't so great at temper tantrums or feeling sad or issues of self-esteem or social skills or learning concerns or, you know, the, the, tons and tons of other stuff that comes along for the ride with ADHD. Again, this is why, like, and I'm, I guess I'm lucky because medicine is not even really on the table as an intervention for me personally to do, but I talk about, this is why behavior therapy is so important because ADHD very rarely is just like the nine inattention symptoms, the nine hyperactive, almost never, I can list on one hand kids I know who it's been that clean cut. It's always other stuff. And that's where the skill building, and for me, the medicine really helps so that we can build the skills. Like the medicine helps so that we can slow down enough and focus enough that we can start to do some of the work of building executive functioning skills, building social skills, building listening skills, building like interpersonal skills. Like that's the stuff that, that we can set your kid up for success in the long run. Okay. That's the heart of this discussion. Let's talk about skills building because I think pediatricians and pediatric clinicians, we, because it's our job as prescribers, we're focusing on what can the medications do, but sometimes parents aren't ready to start with medications. So what are the other things that they can do? I think that expectation setting and that whole, whole psychoed piece is, that's number one, but Okay, what's it look like? What what does executive coaching look like? So I'm sure everybody does it a little bit different. I talk to families. I give examples of all the executive functions, and then I tie the interventions to those examples. So I go through like a whole spiel where I start talking about 
specific executive functions, and then I tie them to the things that I want to talk about next. So like I will run with the family and I'll be like, okay, I go through the whole like air traffic control thing. This is how it works. And then I say, let me give you some examples. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. And you tell me if this sounds like your kid. One executive function that I really like to talk about is an executive function called internal speech. Leah, you and I have been talking for however much time. We've been doing a lot of external speech and our listeners have probably been like listening to that. And as we are incredible creatures, we have these amazing brains that can listen and have like your own internal dialogue going on at the same time. So while we're speaking, people are listening and they're processing what we're talking about and they're having their own reactions to it. They're telling their own story about what's going on. And they're probably doing that silently. <laughs> like they're probably doing that silently in their car or wherever they are. Probably not external speeching. They're internal speeching while they're saying, this is an incredibly important and complex skill, internal speech. Incredibly important. If I'm a kid and I'm not so awesome at it, it might look like something like this. Like I'm out with my friends. I'm at recess. We're standing around and I tell a joke because I'm really creative and funny. And I tell this joke and it's like going over really well. We're all laughing. I'm laughing too. It's great. And then the joke's over and everybody else stops laughing. Like everybody else is kind of like, all right, let's talk about something else. I'll do something else. And if I'm a kid with ADHD and poor internal speech, I'm still like, cracking up over my joke. I'm the funniest person who's ever existed. And I'm not picking up on the fact that the joke's over, or maybe I'm picking up on the fact that the joke's over, but I'm not using that information to be like, okay, Colleen, like, chill out. If you don't chill, everyone's going to think that you're weird or like everyone's going to be annoyed with you. If people aren't going to want to talk to you anymore, they're going to walk away. That's internal speech and it's underdeveloped. It's delayed in kids with ADHD. So you think about your group of seven-year-olds who are joking around and your kid who might look more like a five-year-old kindergartner who just really isn't just picking up on stuff and using that information to guide their next action and their next step. And then what happens to kids with ADHD who have poor internal speech is they get a lot more external speech. They get a lot more people being like, hey, stop, we're done. Like, that's not what it is anymore. And there's just like a lot more external guidance that happens for kids who have poor internal speech. We think that's the solution to the development of internal speech but it's not because that's not really what's at play. This is what's so hard about executive functioning is they're really complicated sort of higher order cognitive abilities. And it's not about like, tell me more. Kids with ADHD get a ton of, you know, tell me more external feedback. That's not really what they need. So I'll talk about something like internal speech, this sort of undeveloped, underdeveloped, because no kids have good internal speech. No seven-year-old is like awesome at this. But a kid with ADHD is going to need some more support. Really so not to, good. Yeah. Think about it when you're talking about it. Of course, I'm having my internal speech about what you're saying. Right. right. Is it's kind of like being able to read the room. You yeah. know, it's it's self-insight, which yeah. a lot of adults don't have. No, it's super hard. And really funnel adults are good at it, are good at doing exactly what you just did. You could listen to me and be thinking about the next thing you were going to say or be thinking about like encounters you've had with patients in the past. Like you're able to do some of that too, like time stuff, which is also a really important executive function that I'll talk about in a second. So kids end up getting a lot of external speech, but what they really probably need is more training in nonverbal cues. And so for kids who have problems with internal speech or families who are like, yeah, that's my kid. No internal speech, like no sort of read the room skills. What I really suggest is like, okay, come up with a system of nonverbal cues. Come up with a system of like, hey, do a thumbs up or like a thumb size or whatever. Like that means like pause, check it out. Or when I say, sometimes I try to make it silly and I say, hey, when you, when you say avocado, that means like pause and look around and like see what's up. 
And kids are going to need coaching around this that isn't like, hey, don't do that. They're going to need some sort of like this. You need a cue to start picking up on the cues. Like you need a cue to stop, make your speech sort of more internal. And again, this is like an experimental process. You can't explain this to a seven-year-old, you know, or like this isn't, I'm explaining it to you guys, but but you can't explain it like that. It really is like, let's develop a system. Let's practice at home. Let's practice having a conversation and the conversation, we're going to have a conversation for like two minutes and then we're going to play a game or we're going to have a conversation for two minutes and then we're going to listen to a really fun song and dance. But during this two minutes, like all you're going to do is watch me, watch me while we talk and we're going to go back and forth and we're going to take turns and we're just going to practice this internal speech mechanism. Because I think sometimes parents, a lot of these skills feel like they've come supernaturally to us, like they've come uh, organically to us. We don't need a ton of practice, but kids with ADHD need a lot of practice. You all can't see me, but I am five feet tall. I've never played basketball in my entire life. No one ever put a basketball in my hand and said, that's going to be a skill portion you I never played. But if you said, Colleen, hey, I'll give you a million dollars if you can make 10 free throws in a row. If you can make 10 free throws in a row, I'll give you a million dollars. And if you put me on a basketball court tomorrow, I could never earn that million dollars. I really couldn't. There's no way I could. I need to practice basketball for like a long time to be good at it. So even if you incentivize it, even if you say, hey, I'm going to be really angry at you if you don't make these 10 free throws. Hey, I'm going to be really uh, disappointed. Or don't you know how important it is to make free throws? That's not going to help. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't want you to be mad at me. And I want a million dollars and I want to be good at basketball. But I, that's not just going to happen because I want it or you want it. It's going to take practice. And I do. So again, a lot of ADHD management, I think, is expectation setting. So when I talk about things like internal speech, I'm like, I know it's weird, but we got to practice. We got to practice. That's really the only way this is going to come together. I think the other part is um, the teaching about the things that you may do that, you know, it's like if it doesn't work, like yelling louder isn't going to help. And like the incentives, because I think the schools rely so much on incentives they don't work for a lot of kids and to keep trying it, it just didn't go anywhere. Your, your description, it reminds me of when my daughter was younger, she was really loud. She was so loud that she up her vocal cords. So she sounded like she smoked five packs. But one of the things that we did, and you can't see me for those that are listening, is I would do like I was twisting the volume on a radio, like, okay, turn it down for her to yeah. you know and she still remembers it yeah. I haven't had to, I haven't had to use it she learned it <laughs> yeah and to be clear like incentive systems actually do work I think schools are so sort of strapped and understaffed and like have so many competing demands that that they can't work because oftentimes I think we're trying to incentivize the wrong thing if you said Colleen I'll give you a million dollars for trying to shoot a free, free throw I'd bank. I'm in. You know what I mean? I think sometimes we're incentivizing things that are too hard. Mm-hmm. Giant incentives for things that are impossible. If you gave me an incentive for going to the basketball court, yeah, I'm down. And going to the basketball court probably will make it more likely that I'm going to make free throws in the future. You know what I mean? So it's not, I think that's the other piece is like, yeah, people oftentimes throw incentive systems out like baby out with bathwater. But I think there are a lot of really predictable reasons that incentive systems fail. So another set of executive functions that I talk about with family is about like 
hindsight, foresight, and insight. And this is what I tie to like an incentive thing. So kids, all kids are bad at hindsight, are bad at looking backwards and saying, okay, this is what happened last time. And so maybe I shouldn't do it that way. Like last time when I hit my brother in the face, I got time out and I got stuff taken away and I didn't like that. So I'm not going to do that next time. Kids are not good at this. Kids with ADHD are really bad at looking backwards in the past and thinking about the stuff that happened and using that information to guide their behavior in the future. Also really bad at foresight, really bad at predicting like, hey, if I do this, what could happen? If I go and I bug my neighbor, like while I'm in class and whatever, and I go bump the kid sitting next to me, that could get like punch me or that kid could be really mad at me or that kid could like stir rumors about me. And the, you know what I mean? Like really bad predicting like, hey, if I do this, what could happen? If I do this, what could happen next time? Not great at hindsight, not great at foresight, not great at insight. And this is the one where I talk to families a lot, where this is the situation where a kid does do something like hits their brother and they've hit their brother like a billion times and done the consequences like a billion times. And families come to their kid and they go, why, <laughs> why, 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 why did you do this? Like, why with this like desperate yeah, demand for a why? And really there probably isn't a why. When kids say, I don't know, I don't think they're trying to annoy you. Like, I don't think they're trying to be smart. I don't think they're trying to like find you or, or be really crafty. I'm saying the opposite which is oftentimes there's not a lot of like, oh, what happened last time I did this? Or, oh, what could happen if I do it again? It really is, I have a desire to do something and then I do it like really, really up close. And that, there isn't a lot of insight into that, like the why. And so when families do a lot of why asking, it's just not gonna be a rewarding experience for anyone. Like it's not, I'm not gonna get a why. And you're gonna frustrate yourself, you're gonna frustrate your child. Hindsight, foresight, and insight are executive functions that are underdeveloped. And that's where incentive systems can come in because it makes it a little bit more concrete and more tangible about what I want you to do in the future. And I think if you can make incentive systems that have more immediacy and less strain. So strain is oftentimes the problem with incentive systems. And strain is this issue of make 10 free throws and I'll give you a million dollars. That's not realistic. First of all, 10 free throws is a lot to make all in a row. A million dollars is a huge reward that I really, really want, but I cannot do. And so again, that's a system that's going to frustrate everybody. Incentive systems that pay attention to like immediacy, when you do the thing I need you to do, get the incentive like as quickly as possible. A lot of reward systems that I talk to families about are like, yeah, at the end of the week, we'll go get a treat. I love treats. I love going to Dunkin' Donuts or I love going to, you know, the trampoline park or I love doing whatever. I love going bowling. Like, that's awesome stuff. I want to do that, but I can't, I can't be good, air quotes, for a full week like that. We're talking about 10 free throws in a row. That's just not going to happen for me. And so these incentive systems that don't pay attention to, I need small rewards frequently. And I need them to happen when I do the thing I'm good at because I'm not good at hindsight foresight. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not good at, oh yeah, a week ago I did something good and now I'm getting rewarded. Or even like two days ago I did something good and now I'm getting rewarded. That's the real problem. So I think like, again, these interventions can work. The reason they, that's why they're evidence-based. That's why they have like a ton of research supporting them. But families oftentimes don't know the why of like why they work. So I do think tying it to executive functioning of like, 
your kid actually, you know, this is the other executive function I talk about. I'll get into the next one, which is you're on a roll. I'm on a roll. This is how I, this is how I sit with families and talk. Sense of time. Oh man. Sense of time is a huge one. And I talk to families about it all the time because I think as adults who've lived a lot of time, not always, but we're pretty decent at sense of time. If I asked you right now to predict how long have we been having this conversation, or if I asked you to predict how long does it take you to do something, you've done a lot of some things for a lot of years. You do, you're pretty good at that, at predicting how much time has passed or predicting how much time something might take. Kids are terrible at this. Kids are not good at this. And kids with ADHD are really terrible at this. And there's some predictable reasons why they're really bad at it. Time feels different to a kid with an executive functioning disorder. Time physically feels different. And I give the example of this. If you find a kid who's into something, and it could be anything. It could be the iPad, and it could be like video games, but it could be like bugs or space or princesses or whatever you know what I mean like something that I'm into something that I I like it and not just do I like it uh I it activates sort of this chemical chemistry in my brain what's cool about video I use video games but video games are designed to activate the executive functioning system because it's like things are moving and they're lighting up and they're making sounds and I'm allowed to move my body so I'm moving and I'm connecting all of this and it's happening and I am keyed in I'm zoned in I'm almost hyper-focused on the stuff that I like. And again, it could be space. It could be Legos. It could be Pokemon. It could be whatever. But if I'm into it, I'm into it. I'm into it 150%. And then time goes really fast. So when you say something like, hey, Colleen, you have 30 minutes on the video game and you're a good parent. You set mornings. <laughs> you know what I mean? You do the thing where you're like, 30 minutes is the time limit. The pediatrician said you can only have two hours of spring time. So this is your 30 minutes now. And I'm going to give you a 10 minute warning. I'm going to give you a five minute warning. And as I'm a kid, I'm like playing on my video games and I'm doing the things I'm going to do. And I'm getting my warnings. I'm like, okay, whatever. And then when it's over, I'm like, what? No, that time went so fast. Please, can I just have a few more minutes? Because that is how it feels. Time goes lightning fast for kids who have this like dysregulated executive functioning attentional system. But then when it comes to other stuff, <laughs> stuff I'm not interested in, stuff that doesn't light up and make noise and I'm not supposed to move my body stuff like math homework and again you're a good parent you say okay look we're going to do you five minutes of math homework and then we're going to take a break so we're going to set the timer and you just do five minutes where you really do it and then you take a break and what happens after like two minutes kids are like is it over what time is it like how long have I here is it a million hours like what's going on and so, uh, that's how it Feels. And if, you know, if you have an attentional disorder or you really know someone, it, time feels different. Kids are bad at predicting time. And so it really is another thing where when you're talking about incentive systems, kids, a, a day waiting feels like an eternity. The thing that I did 24 hours ago, I truly, it's not registering with me anymore. And that's sort of that hindsight, foresight, insight thing. But it's also this idea of time really feels longer to me because if it was up to me as a kid, all I would do is play. I would play. If it was up to me, I would play all day. I would wake up whenever my body, whenever my eyes open and I wouldn't put on clothes and I wouldn't, you know, brush my teeth. I would just start playing. I'd play with my Legos and then I'd go play with my games and then I'd go play with my friends and I'd go outside and I'd play and I'd play and I'd play. 
And then when I was going to like pass out because I was starving, I would throw a peanut butter sandwich in my face. And again, I wouldn't care about what it looked like or what my teeth looked like or any of that. I just throw it in my mouth and then I'd go play some more. And then when my bladder was about to explode, I'd go pee and I wouldn't flush and I wouldn't care. And I'd run and I'd go play some more. And then when I was exhausted, I'd like, whatever it was, if it was up to kids, that's what they would do. We live in a world that is against that agenda, like 150%. Um, think about that. When you think about that from a kid's perspective, and when you think about the fact that I'm not really great at looking forward and looking backward and thinking about the why, when you think about I'm actually not really good at predicting time and how that works. And so what you really need to do with that then is make, you got to teach time. You got to teach kids to practice estimating time. You have to teach kids to practice like laying out a schedule. You got to teach kids to practice looking at what are we doing today? What are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing this week? You have to teach kids to practice these new timers. And there's all kinds of very cool timers on the internet, like visual ones. And if, you know, you don't even have to get expensive to go to the dollar store and get like one of those little stand timers that makes time more visual. Or there are all kinds of very cool clocks that have different colors and different sounds. I teach sense of time with music. Kids love music. I say, you know what? When we brush teeth, Brushing teeth takes about the length of a song. Let's pick a song. You can pick whatever song you want. As long as they're about two minutes, you know what I mean? And then you just have kids brush their teeth to a song. Or you say, you know what? It's time to take a shower. A shower should take you about three songs. Or whatever, you know, you feel like is fair for a shower. You know what I mean? But, but starting to do that, a meal should not take an hour. Ever. A meal should take 15 minutes. And if you don't, the meal, that's cool. There's going to be another meal. Like, you know what I mean? This is how you start. You need to teach more explicitly how time works because kids with ADHD or these executive functioning deficits or delays, even if we don't call it ADHD, just like poor executive functioning, they, they need you to teach it. They need to practice it. And making it more visual is actually a really nice way of combining different types of executive functioning. Plus, I, I do. First of all, I wish people could see you because you're so animated and oh. I just, you know, I can visualize this kid. And the other thing is, it resonates with me about certain things. I mean, all of us about time. That's why there's like a gazillion planners out there and, you know, Pinterest and stuff on how to do a schedule and, you know, what's going to, because we're all trying to do that. I like the idea about teaching time. I think that's really brilliant but I go ed piece about why this is so hard it's hard for everybody but and is when you talk about you know the kid if it was up to them I think that there are some adults that live like that too and that's why they're in their parents basement and not doing anything because they don't know how to manage that either there may be other things, but well, those are great. How many more, how many more are these? I need to manage well, my time. <laughs> I know. Well, I can keep going. I can talk about it. There's one, maybe I'll just do a little more. Okay. I love them. Things. Yeah. I think I can do as many as you want, but I think there's at least one more that I always talk about, which is the executive function of working memory. So mm. working memory, you know, that's a fancy word for holding multiple things in your mind at the same time and moving your body. <laughs> so those are hard things to do. Like it's hard to hold multiple things in your mind at the same time and like work on that stuff and being moving. And that's oftentimes what we're asking kids to do. As adults, for some of us, but as adults, but you'd be surprised, we're actually pretty good at working about, right? We're actually pretty good at doing multiple, not doing multiple things at the same time. Like multitasking is not the same as working memory. 
working meant we're not, no one is good at multitasking. That's like a whole, no, it's, whole yeah, that, that's, <laughs> I heard it. I heard a great conversation. Like it's a myth. Like your it brain is. only do one thing at a time. So like, for example, when kids are listening to music or watching TV or on their phone while they're trying to write a paper that every time you, you know, on the paper, but every time you check your phone, you're backtracking. Yeah. And, you know, or you've had that, that situation where you're having a really great conversation, your phone pings and you look at it and you, you really are like not with them. Yeah. So I think that those are, are ways to explain, you know, that that multitasking is a fantasy. Yeah, that exactly. Good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think like having that distinction too, when I talk about working memory, I'm not talking about multitasking. Nobody's going to be multitasking. That's actually the whole point of talking about working memory. Working memory is about sort of holding on to pieces of information simultaneously. It's not about like doing multiple things simultaneously. Nobody's great at that. Adults are decent at holding multiple pieces of information at the same time. So what I mean by that is, let's say it's after work for me and I got to pick some stuff up at the store and I like mental through like, all right, what do I need? I need coffee. I need eggs. I need fruit. I need bread. Okay. So that's like four things. I need coffee, milk, eggs, fruit, you know, whatever, bread. I pick up like a couple of things in my mind. I'm like, oh, that's like breakfast stuff. That's like morning stuff. All right, cool. And then I get into my motor vehicle. I operate it. I drive it to the grocery store and I still can have not many more than like four or five, you know what I mean? Like four to seven, five to seven things is really the amount of things I could do without having to make myself a list. But I could do that. I can like hold that information in my brain, move my body, get into the car. And part of the reason I can hold that information in my brain is I've already given it a label that's like, all right, that's like breakfast stuff, like coffee and eggs and milk and bread and, you know, fruit. And I jump in the car, I go there, a very complex task, go to the store, pick up the stuff I need, follow all the social norms, pay for the stuff and get back in my car. What a complex set of things to do. And as an adult, it's like breathing air. We do that stuff all the time. We don't even think about it. Kids are bad at this. And kids with ADHD are particularly bad at it. So what I mean by this is I'm an adult. And if you said to me, Colleen, go clean your room. I would do that. <laughs> I would pick up my body. I would move in my room. I would do all the stuff I was supposed to do because I cleaned my room like a billion times and I know what that means. And I could even probably walk you through the steps of how I would do that, even though I'm not even looking at my bedroom right now. You know what I mean? Like I tell you all the stuff and I kind of know I have a mental map of where things are in my room and what it should look like and what are the things that make a room clean. I'm capable of doing that. And as adults, we're really good at that. So when you say to me, Colleen, go clean your room, I could do it no problem. Great at that. And kids of the age here are really not great at it because when you think about cleaning your room, what you're really saying is stop what you're doing presently. Pick up your body, move your body, put it in your bedroom, look at your bedroom, make some decisions about what to do first. Pick up the clothes off the floor, put the clothes in the hamper, take the hamper to the laundry room, come back into your room, take the toys, take the toys and put them in the toy box, put the toy box in the closet, make your bed, make sure you have all the drawers closed, make sure the windows where, where it's supposed to be, make sure the shoes are all in the like shoe rack or whatever. Like it's actually a ton of steps to clean your room. Clean your room means something different to you and to your child. Now, are there times when kids are like, no, I'm not cleaning my room. Uh, okay, like that's a different beast. But by breaking it down into its parts, you sort of avoid the argument or the, even the mental anguish of like, what is, what's happening here? Are they just not doing it? Or they, do they get lost? Or is it like, what's happening? You know, things down and you make it visual. So this is my recommendation around like visual schedules or visual task lists. 
task list. Battles that you have in your family, the battles about cleaning the room, the battles about starting homework, the battles about getting ready in the morning, the battles about whatever it is that you battle about. And you can battle about a lot of things. <laughs> but the things that you think about as like, this is a straightforward command, take a shower. Well, take a shower actually is a lot of stuff. <laughs> like take a shower actually is like a complex thing. It's take off all your clothes and get your body in the shower and wash the parts of your body and do that in an order and then do the shampoo and then do the conditioner and then wash your face and then do, you know, and then you rinse really, really well. And then you towel off your body. Like there's actually a lot of steps to that. And for a kid who's not great at holding all of that information at, at, in their mind and moving their body at the same time and isn't super awesome at estimating time and like how long things should take and like whatever, this actually is a hard thing. So I've done stuff like I'll make a visual schedule and find some way to get it laminated and tack it up in the shower. Things that I, as a psychologist, I think emptying the dishwasher. Empty the dishwasher is a thing. Like I know how to do that, you know, and that's a one step command, but it's not because once a kid gets into the dishwasher, it's like, okay, first do the silverware, then do the bowls, then do the plates, then do the glasses. You know, things that you think about as one step commands actually sometimes are not. Start your homework is actually like really hard. It's like stable, get out your backpack, lay out your schoolwork, make sure you've got you know, the things that you need or whatever. Like there actually are a lot of steps to these things that we think of as one-step commands. So I think oftentimes the advice is like, tell things one at a time. Your parents are like, okay, I do that. But it's like, I am guilty of being like, I gave you a one-step command, but it's actually not. It's like a lot of steps. And if you can break things down into their pieces and you can make it visual for kids, either written or with pictures or whatever, if you can like have it posted, some of these battles cannot be, can be less battles or it gets to what you were saying earlier Leah about like I don't like the word or the label ODD that doesn't help me at all but what's helpful potentially is this kind of distinction between like a can't do and a won't do problem by making it a visual schedule or by breaking it down into its tiniest pieces now you've said okay I've eliminated the executive functioning problem I've eliminated the working memory problem. So if it's not happening now, it's I won't do it. Now, now a separate set of things we have to do for that. There's a separate set of ways to approach that or intervene with that or deal with non-compliance. But you've taken away this sort of confusion about like me or do they do supposed to do next or like what's going on? And it's kind of like, no, you know what we'll do. We laid it out in the schedule. You know what I mean? Like we've got it all set up and it just makes life a lot easier. It takes out some of the power struggle uh, component of it. It's funny as you're talking, I'm thinking about, again, when my kids were younger and the, the clean up the room, and I've used that example with families. And so we would do like, okay, go in your room and pick up all the socks. And when you're done, come back. Yeah. Or the other thing about time, I remember, here's an example for teenager. When you say, put the dishes away, I'm thinking in my head, that means like now, like now. For a teenager and they're putting it off and they're like, well, I'll do it before I go to bed. You know, why do I have to do it now? And they may or may not remember it. So I would parents like put a time on this thing that you want done. So if it's I need to have the dishes put away before I come home from work. So by 530, you need to have the dishes put away. I get that you could do it before you go to bed and you could still say, well, I did it. I'm going to do it, you know? So I, I think breaking them down into those kind of chunks is helpful. The other thing that's striking me as you're talking about this, a lot of things, these skills 
would apply to kids on the autism spectrum, all of them, like reading cues, teaching. I had a kid one time, he would come in and very bright, but totally lack social skills. And I said, when you come in, you could say, hi, how are you? And, and kind of wave. And so he got really good at that. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of these things I think would apply. Some of it sounds like ABA, immediate reward, immediate reward, which is interesting. Just an aside, I, my internal speech was going <laughs> somewhere else, but this is so much fun. I love it so much. Before, I, I'm thinking, honestly, Colleen, and after we're done here, we need to do a part two because... <laughs> There is like more stuff. So uh, one is, do you have anything else that you absolutely got to leave us with about this topic today? And the other is, are there any like workbooks or guidebooks? I think of, I've always loved Ned Driven to Distraction. He's a child psychiatrist and I love that. It also, and we didn't talk about the whole thing when you're talking about all this with the kid with the family and the parent goes, oh my God, that sounds like me. That's a whole nother thing. And I think that happens a lot. So, so two things I'm putting in my working memory here. <laughs> so two things, one is what else do you need to leave us with today? And then number two, do you have some books that clinicians could like pull out a worksheet? Yeah. Well, you, you, I'll just say this, you bring up an excellent point about like, it's an ADHD family. It's not an ADHD kid, which is why I'm super specific about being like, everybody's bad at this. All kids are bad at this. Like everybody's why I do that because none of this should be shamey. The other thing that I do to, to kind of like the future telling, I think that's the best thing you can do as a provider is like, is do things like, again, when you're expectation setting, which is what, that's what you're telling when you do that. Before I even get into it, before I even ask about family history, I'll say something like this. When we're talking about executive functioning or we're talking about ADHD, we know that there's a genetic component. And so what I do is I think about the kid that we're talking about and I think about that kid's parents and I think about those parents' parents. So I think about grandparents and parents. And when we think about those six people, statistically, the odds are at least one of those people has signs and symptoms of ADHD. So by doing that, I'm allowing there to be permission for the family to say, yeah, it probably does run in our family without being like, it's me, it's me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sometimes families are like, it's me. Like they want that conversation with you where they're like, whoa, yeah, that is, you're talking about me or you're talking about my mom or you're talking about, you know, and I think just like giving permission to be like, yeah, this stuff happens in families. It happens with high frequency. And it's not like one-to-one -one genetics, like brown hair or, you know what I mean? It's not necessarily, but there is this like hereditary component to it. And just like allowing it to be like, these are probably going to be family level interventions. Again, you're like you said very beautifully, Leah, your, your child's not going to wake up in the morning and be like, you know what? I've been thinking about it and I don't want to get in trouble today. I've been thinking about it. And actually it would be really cool if I just like did all the stuff I was supposed to do and I did it right away and I never argued and there were problems. Like today is the day. I'm just going to be that way. <laughs> like, and, and it's not going to happen for anybody. Some of this is about making a shift in our family. And working together to make like a they're more efficient ship overall. And and think that that really just changes the tone too when you can make it like, hey, this isn't about your kid who's the problem. It's about like, hey, we all got to work on this stuff together because nobody's great at it. That really can shift the tone. And I think when you're talking about ADHD management, again, like the tone 
And the way, because it's such a blamey, and it has such a blamey history, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people wouldn't call us ADHD. They'd just say, you're a bad kid. You're a bad kid, and you're not good. You're in trouble, and you're not smart. And and that, that damage, you know, we talk about generational trauma, and I know it's not the same as, like, true generational trauma, but it is. That stuff's still in the culture. And that's how people perceive and parents come in and they're like, we do again, try to do some work to be like, Hey, this is an ADHD period. This is executive functioning stuff. None of us are good at it. We all have to work at it. We all have to practice. And setting that stage that way is going to make it so much easier. And again, it makes it easier then to be like, Hey, yeah, we're going to try some stuff with medicine. Or we're going to try some stuff with behavior, but we're going to have to experiment. We're going to have to work with your family. It's like about our, you know, our whole family and our whole team. And it's a bigger thing. And I have those conversations with family. So I'm really glad you brought that up because oftentimes there is like, oh, there's so much mental illness stigma. I think it's getting better, but it's still there. And I think sort of trying to address it in a humanistic way actually does make it more likely that families will pursue behavior therapy and not just medication. Well, and I think when you're explaining all these symptoms and that, then it doesn't feel like, you know, for me, I was just writing down, it's not, it's not a bad kid. It's bad skills. Yeah. It's bad skills. And my job as a pediatrician or as a, you know, in partnership with a psychologist, social worker, whoever's going to help is helping to build these skills. And this works for a lot of kids. You know, again, that whole, I mentioned before, Ross Green about the disreal, that's a kid that can't manage their emotions. Now, there may be other things that are going on with that, but again, they can't manage it. And so it just see the explosion, but you don't know what's going on to, to cause that. The perfect place to wrap up, I was going to um, ask you too about, is there yeah. work, what, what shows? Sure. So <laughs> there's, of course, a ton. And you should make uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> there are, of course, a ton of resources. The one that I recommend the most frequently is called the ADHD Book of Lists by Sam Reed. So the ADHD Book of Lists is awesome because it is written in bullet points. It is not a text. It is just like lists. It's a book of lists. So the list. I want like, that. Yeah, it's great. All books should be written this way. Like it's for a family that has these things going on. And so it's written in, but it's like a li- book of lists. So lists of like, Hey, you're having some in the morning, try this bullet point of list. Hey, you've got a meeting mm-hmm. coming up to school, try these like bullet point of lists. And so it really is set up in these like very digestible, tiny, like nuggets of information, which is yeah, how all information should be disseminated. Honestly, I really like the ADHD book of lists. There's a book smart, but scattered that I think is really great when it comes to executive functioning, anything written by Russ Barkley is excellent. The heat of different ADHD texts, but he talks a lot about like working memory and executive functioning and some of these more um, like higher order cognitive skills. And so Russ Barkley is another uh, author who I think is just phenomenal. And then, and then there is good stuff, you know, not everything on the internet is bad. There is good stuff. There are good resources like attitude website, kids health, which is from Nemours, which is my children's hospital, has a lot of really great resources. And so I would recommend all that good stuff too. Okay. Yeah. And the attitude made me think, I don't know why I still get it, but I get the attitude magazine. The um, website's great though. Yeah. Which is awesome. The other thing, and I will put all this in the show notes, is the um, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry has facts for families. 
And they have, so anybody can go on, they have a lot of good information sheets on medications, about what these diagnostic criteria, you know, what that all means. So that's another really good resource for anything to do with mental health diagnoses. Well, this was super fun. I'm going to say right now for listeners who are so geeked about this conversation, stay tuned because part two will be coming <laughs> Yeah, shortly thereafter. So, <laughs> hey, thanks so much. I hope you have a great day. I'm inspired to keep track of better things. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, I think that, you know, the big takeaway for me is set expectations and try and see the world through their eyes. I, I was just talking with a, a doctor that talks a lot about trauma and that kind of thing. And one of the things is keep the child's mind in mind. And that's really what we're trying to do is, is kind of looking at it through their scope and what are they good at and what sucks because yeah, that's a big problem. Well, this is super helpful. I hope listeners had out their pens and pencils <laughs> taking notes. It's a great day and we will schedule part two. Yes. Great. Okay. Did I already say how much I absolutely love this conversation? I know I did. It's just so good. So here are my takeaways. Number one, Oh my God, so good. Number two, start with conceptualizing the diagnosis when talking to parents. ADHD inattentive type, hyperactive or impulsive type, or combined type. You know what the definitions of those are and you can use the Vanderbilt to explain it, but that's a good place to start. Number three, take a good history, a really good history. Birth history, family history, learning delays, this is where you can begin to sort out those comorbidities that are frequently coexisting with ADHD. Think learning disabilities, trauma, family struggles, and, you know, the social determinants of health, cognitive deficits, autism spectrum, fetal alcohol syndrome, all the things. You may want to have a list and some screens to complement the Vanderbilt as you're trying to sort this out. Number four. Now, throw away the label and really look at executive function because that's where it's at. Number five, start with psychoeducation for families and patients. Use the metaphor of air traffic control or a conductor metaphor and describe the huge task that executive functioning requires. Number six, lay out the deficits of ADHD. It lies in executive functioning. Kids just don't have the skill set that adults do and kids with ADHD are really bad at it. Number seven, for kids with ADHD, the impact of those executive functional skill deficits may set them back two to three years. That's pretty significant and why it's so important to identify this and really intervene so that they're not losing any time. Number eight, now lay out building the parent's skills of expectation setting into realistic goals that's informed by those executive function deficits. Number nine. Okay, now it gets fun. Let's talk about some of the specific deficits. Number 10, internal speech. That's the voice in your head that is always taking notes, like your secretary. Kids are bad at this, and kids with ADHD are really bad at it. You can teach using nonverbal cues, for example, a word like avocado that helps you, you know, reset, read the room. I use the example of 
the volume knob. Okay, I'm old, you know, a volume knob on a TV or a radio, but you get the idea. You can, you know, tell kids like, hey, tune it down. Number 11, hindsight, foresight, and insight. These are hard for all of us, but kids are really bad at it. And kids with ADHD are terrible with this. This is where incentives that are realistic and immediate can reinforce behavioral insight. And again, this is just a teaching point for kids and for families to understand what the problem is. Number 12, sense of time. I love this one and can totally relate. Adults have experience and get time. Kids aren't good at this and kids with ADHD are really bad. This often looks like either overfocus, you know, the kid that can't get off the video game versus underfocus, like I can't spend two seconds doing math. This is where you can help by teaching time. Learn to estimate time. Use music. I loved her example of, you know, brushing your teeth. That's one song. Taking a shower. That's five songs or however long you think it should take. Really helping kids link what they're trying to do with something that makes sense to number 13 working memory that is holding a bunch of stuff in your head and moving think of any task that you do and then break it down to all the steps we just you know don't think twice about what it means to clean up a room but for a kid it can be extraordinarily daunting and that's where you know breaking things down using chunks of time, all kinds of strategies might be helpful. And, you know, you can help kids by being really specific about what cleaning up your room looks like. You can shape with time strategies and visual lists. Number 14, explain to families that ADHD is highly genetic and that there are often ADHD families. You can look at mom, dad, and both sets of grandparents. That's six people. You can explain that chances are pretty good that at least one of them has ADHD too. No finger pointing, just reframing. Number 15, and here's a big takeaway. What we can do is help by future teaching and predicting, setting expectations and what that can look like. Number 16, set the tone with the families. This is not a bad kid, just a kid with bad skills. Number 17, Lay out that intervention and management will be an experiment. You might try medications. You might try new strategies. But it's going to take time to fine-tune this and, you know, really figure out what's going to work best. Number 18, check out the show notes for the books and sites on ADHD that Colleen mentioned. A couple I'll just rattle off here. Driven to Distraction by Ned Hallowell. The Explosive Child by Ross Green. I loved her suggestion of the ADHD Book of Lists and Smart But Scattered and Anything by Russ Barkley. So again, I'll put those all in the show notes for you. And number 19, stay tuned for part two because, oh my gosh, as this conversation unfolded, I just realized we could have gone on for another hour. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope this was as much fun for you as it was for me and that you learned a lot of new skills because, hey, we all need those new skills. Take care. Have a great day. Use your executive function to plan out your day. Find some time. Take a breath and enjoy the work that you do. See you next time. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.